Hello. Welcome to the Freedom From Anger podcast. I have another great guest today. His name is Terry Tucker. He is the founder of Motivational Check LLC. He's a former Division I basketball player, as well as a SWAT team hostage negotiator, Citadel cadet, high school basketball coach. He's also a cancer survivor, but as he likes to say, cancer warrior. Love that. He's appeared on over 600 podcasts, and he is the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. You can find that on Amazon. I'm looking forward to getting it and giving it a look. And if you want to go to his website, it is motivationalcheck.com. All right. Thank you for being here, Terry. How are you doing today? I'm great, James. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Your story is extraordinary. You've been through a lot. And from what I have read about you, you stay positive. Where have we heard that before? It's easy to say. It's not always easy to do. And I'll be honest with you. I, I've been fighting cancer for 11 years and it's it's taken my foot. It's taken my leg. I've had numerous other surgeries, all kinds of drugs. And I have bad days. I'm a human being just like everybody else. And I don't want anybody, you're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. I do not wear a cape and fly around with magical powers. I have those bad days. I get down. I feel sorry for myself. But when I do, I find that I'm looking inwards. I'm looking at, look how bad this is for me. And I find a way to get out of that, or at least it works for me, is to just flip that around and find somebody that I can help. Find somebody that, that needs some assistance. Find somebody that I can make a positive difference in their life. And now all of a sudden, the focus is not on me. It's on somebody else. And we all think, I think from time to time, that we just can't do it. We just can't go on. And don't get me wrong. I think we all have a breaking point. I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. There was a, a professor at Johns Hopkins University back in the 1950s who did a very simple experiment with rats. It was a very simple experiment. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And initially, the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to stink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats, on average, threaded water for 60 hours. So think about that. The first time, you're just not going to fail. You're going to die. And the second time around, you're able to go 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives that we have to believe. Maybe, maybe not today, maybe not next month, maybe not even this year. But if we keep doing the things we need to do to improve our lives, to, to keep moving forward, eventually our lives will get better. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever give ourselves credit for. We quit long before our bodies ever let us down. I've not heard about the rats and the water, but that's definitely amazing. And like you said, we, we really 
don't know what our bodies can take because we never put it to, to that extent. I know just kind of looking back on my military background, that's boot camp. We're going to stress your body to the max to show you that, look at what you're capable of. I did things that I never thought that I would be able to do, but we tend to limit ourselves on what we think we can accomplish. Resiliency is definitely an area that we all can, can work on, being able to bounce back. Like those rats, 15 minutes, boom, bounce back. They were there for hours. But we don't know unless we push ourselves to that limit. A lot of us, we're scared to. I think we, we try to control things that are, that are outside our purview. And, and that just leads to stress. That leads to anxiety. I went to college at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a military school. And one year while I was there, we had a president by the name of James Stockdale. He was a retired admiral in the Navy. He had been a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War. And he was shot down flying a mission over North Vietnam. And he spent eight years as a prisoner of war in the famous Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp. And actually won the Medal of Honor for his his efforts during his time in captivity. And I didn't have a lot of interaction with Admiral Stockdale. He was the president of the college. I was just a cadet. But I remember being at a at an event with him, and somebody asked him, "Who were the people that survived that torture, that brutality of being a prisoner of war?" He said, "Well, let me tell you, who didn't survive." He said it wasn't the big, strong, tall, tough guys that thought they could handle any kind of abuse or torture. He said, and, and this kind of surprised me, he said, the other group that didn't survive were the optimists. These were the people that thought that they would be rescued or let go by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, and Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter would come and go, and they wouldn't be rescued or they wouldn't be released. And those people would die of a broken heart. He said the people that survived understood what they could control and controlled it. And according to Stockdale, that was pretty much for the prisoners, the thoughts in our minds and the air that we were breathing. You know, when we ate, when we slept, when we were tortured, when we exercised, when we got mail, all those things were at the discretion of the enemy. So he said, you have to understand that, you know, in life, we, we spend so much time worrying about things that are outside of our control. If we would be much better off for our own physical and mental well-being if we understood what we could control and control those things. I cannot agree with you more. It's having those realistic expectations. When I teach classes, when I'm talking to people, definitely huge into cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy. It's really challenging your thought process, how you view things, realizing that you don't have control over 99% of the world and what happens, but you do have control over you and how you choose to respond rather than react. We're always busy reacting. Well, that's easy. Responding to a situation is a totally different thing. And I find it's a hard pill to swallow to a lot of people when they realize they don't have that much control over their day-to-day -day lives. They wish 
somebody would act this way or they wish somebody would do this and like all these wishes. And then they set themselves up for disappointment because their expectations is that they're going to treat me the way I want to be treated and they don't. Here I am. Now I'm sad. Or they must treat me the way I want to be treated. So then it's like a definite, you know, it's an absolute. And then, but all this is happening in our heads. And I know you have your four truths and that's number one, controlling your mind. So it doesn't control you. It goes right back into the, the whole stoicism philosophers that I definitely love, like Marcus Aurelius, all those guys. <laughs> it, it does. You're, you're absolutely right. And controlling your mind. I've got these four truths and I used to think that none of them were any more important than the other one. But as I've learned, as I've studied, I've read I think that is the most important, controlling your mind or your mind is going to control you. I think I learned that as a young man. I had three knee surgeries when I was in high school. And I remember when I went back playing basketball after those knee surgeries, my, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like you're probably a step slower since these operations that College coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you to play for their school. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I am still playing basketball at an elite level. And coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or university. I learned early that I needed to, to change the narrative, to, to change that negative part of my brain. And I always tell people or caution people, maybe not tell them, caution people to be very careful how we talk to ourselves. And, you know, whether we admit it or not, we all, we all talk to ourselves. We all kind of have that inner dialogue that goes on in our lives. And, and I always tell people to, to be careful with that because, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you a basketball example. If I took a basketball and I went out onto the court and I practiced shooting free throws, there would be a certain part of my brain that would engage. If we could look at that under an MRI, that would actually light up. Now, if I took a or if I thought about taking a basketball, going out on that court and shooting those free throws, that exact same area of my brain would engage. And again, if we could look at it under an MRI, it, it would light up. So I always tell people to be careful what they say because we all become what we think. You know, if, if we keep telling ourselves, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, do that. Eventually, you're going to hardwire your brain to a point where, yeah, you're right. You can do that. And I used to have people come up to me. I, I still do from time to time now that will will say, gee, Terry, you know, I, I've read your cancer story. I've heard about what you've been through with cancer, and I could never do what you did. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, James, but sometimes I can be a little bit of a smart aleck. So I, I will <laughs> say to them sometimes, yeah, you're right. You couldn't do what I did because you've already defeated yourself in your own mind. You've already decided you can't do that. Why would you go into anything, whether it's, you know, alcohol recovery, anger, anger management, a new business, whatever it is, why would you go into that thinking, I can't do this? Because if, if that's the way you feel, my suggestion would be is, I would suggest you just sleep in that morning because you, you've already defeated yourself with your mindset. If you can't control your mind, I can promise you, you're never going to be able to control your body. Bobby Knight was a basketball coach at Indiana University when I was growing up. And he had a great saying. He said, mental is to physical as four is to one. 
So here's this great coach, you know, <laughs> teaching premier athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important to your overall success than anything your physical body is going to do. And he might have needed some of your management classes. You think, Bobby? A little bit. <laughs> oh, just iconic. Just flinging chairs across. I wish I could get somebody on here that I don't agree with. I, I tend to pick people that are like-minded, so it's going to help out our audience. But the, the mental game, that's where it's at. I try my best to get across to our clients that no matter what happens to you, how you perceive it, whether it be an illness, whether it be a death in the family, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be good, but we don't have to make it life altering and go off the deep end we, or use it as an excuse to maybe pick up bad habits that we used to have because we tend to make these little agreements, these little little caveats in our brains. Well, if this happens, then I get the green light to do this. So if somebody passes away that I love, then I can go back to using drugs. And we all do it. Hey, it's my birthday. So here we go. And I've seen it a thousand times. But that's kind of a slippery slope, especially if you're in recovery, especially if you're dealing with angry issues. I talk a lot about our vocabulary, even though I'm not good at talking. Our communication skills, how we talk, what we talk about, the words that we use, the value we put on certain words, and really challenge that thought process and going, okay, why is this word more important than this word? If somebody says this, then I have the right to do this. Like I said, those little exceptions. I try to attack it from like the little, like little small things. Like the little small changes can make you know, huge, huge results. You're right. Yeah. And I remember when I, when I first started as a hostage negotiator on the Cincinnati Police Department SWAT team, they, they gave us a formula. And the formula was 738.55. And it had to do with how we communicate. And 7% of how we communicate is the words that we use. 38% of it is the tone of voice that we use with those words. And then 55% of it is our body language and our facial expressions. So, you know, if you think about from, from my job as a police officer, 99% of what I did was face-to-face -face with another human being, whether it was pulling you over for running a red light or answering a domestic run or whatever, that it was face-to-face. -face. And so I could see, I could take visual clues from what was going on. If I was talking to you, for example, and you were kind of around and stuff like that, well, maybe, maybe James is thinking about running. Or <laughs> if you were standing there balling up your fists, it's like, well, maybe James wants to fight. I could see those visual clues and I could do what was appropriate. I could sit you down. I could handcuff you. I could put you in my car, whatever was appropriate for why I was there. But as negotiators, we were not with the person we were negotiating. We could be on a phone blocks away. We could be behind a locked door. So I didn't, I never had that 55%. So I would say something and I couldn't see the guy on the other side of the door kind of roll his eyes like, oh, wow, what an idiot this guy is. Doesn't know anything about what we're, we're talking about here. And we had to figure things out based on 
certainly what people were saying, but what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And that's where the nuance was of being a negotiator, of, of you know, sort of reading between the lines of, of what people were saying or weren't saying. And there were many times we'd be over a year, we'd spend hours over here talking about something when the real problem was over here, but we hadn't developed that empathy. We hadn't developed that trust with that individual where they were comfortable enough talking to us about why we were really there. So yeah, certainly the words we use are important. The tone of voice that we use is important, but also our body language. You know, are we, are we close by, you know, do we have our arms crossed? Are we checking our phone? Are we do you know, why somebody else is talking? That, that sends a message to people, whether it's subliminal or whether they actually say, well, gee, he doesn't care what I'm saying because he's not even paying attention to me. So yeah, there's a, how we communicate is a really, I, I, I'm sure you agree. It's a very fascinating way of, of looking at how, how people interact with each other. And for me, it was, it was a big learning curve, but once I, once I learned it and understood it, you kind of look for it in other people. Oh yeah, definitely. I always kind of start off with relationships because that's what they're usually more kind of keen to kind of focus in on. Well, so-and-so's being a so-and-so, da-da-da-da, relationship, relationship, relationship. And I go back to the communication and I go, okay, well, do y'all communicate? Well, they know, and just kind of hum, haul back and forth. And I tell them, I was like, the number one reason relationships do not work is lack of communication. It's like, so if you're angry about something, what do you do? Do you say something or do you stuff it? And then it builds and builds and builds and then it erupts. And then here you go. Now, now you're sitting in front of me. So the whole communication thing, it's universal in every relationship. You have to be able to, to communicate. And like you said, with the body language, tone of voice, I never really gave much credence to the tone thing until I got married. And then I realized tone means a lot. Um, my wife lets me it, know it about does. my tone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, and it does. And I'm, there's, a, there's a management consultant. I'm, his name just went right out of my head. This one happens when you get old. But he deals strictly with CEOs of companies. And he's always going into the company and, and, and sit down with the CEO and it's like, okay, tell me what your problems are. Tell me what issues you're having. And, and the CEO will list out, you know, three, four, five problems. <laughs> and then he'll say to the, the, the man or the woman, he said, okay, now what, what's your responsibility? What's your role in, in that problem, in that issue? And he said, invariably, they will be, well, you know, the senior vice president of HR or saying, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you what somebody else's role is. What's your role in this? And he says, it's really hard. People don't want to take ownership. They don't want to take responsibility for problems or issues where when it comes to, you know, their, their company or dealing with other people and stuff like that. And sometimes the, the actual answer to that question is, I hired the wrong person for that job. That person, you know, it, that's my fault. I shouldn't have done that. I should have vetted them better. I should have asked better questions. And I, which reminds me of another story. I remember when I was kind of early in my business career, I, I met, I was looking at a marketing position. I met with the senior vice president of marketing and we spent 90 minutes, an hour and a half talking about my life up till I graduated from college. 
one question about business, not one question about marketing, anything. And I, re I remember asking him later, I got to ask you, you know, your line of questioning, I thought was kind of, I thought it was kind of goofy, but I used a better word than that. Talk about communicating, you know, it was rather <laughs> unique. Could you explain why you did that? He said, sure. He said, I got plenty of people around me that will tell me whether you're a good fit from a, from a business point of view, from a marketing point of view, from an, an addition to the team point of view. But he said, I want to hire people of good character. And I believe character is developed in the first 20 years of your life. So that's why I asked you, what was the relationship with your parents like growing up? What was playing basketball like? What was it about having the knee surgeries and fighting back from that that you learned? What was college like? Things like that. He said, because I believe that those first 20 years are how you develop character. And he said, the other thing I thought was interesting, he said, character is caught, not taught. You're not going to take a, you know, read a book or take a class and say, oh, now I'm a person of great character. He said, no, you, you view other people and how they handle situations and either say, yeah, I really love the way a woman handled that situation or boy, the way that guy treated that person, that was terrible. I never want to do anything like that. So, you know, how do we develop our character? And certainly can refine your character as you get older in life and things like that. But those first 20 years are so important in terms of, you know, the things that really matter in our lives. And, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, it, you know, in terms of we try to control things. One, we can't control. And two, that don't really matter, that, you know, to us in, in a lot of ways. So, so character yeah. is another huge aspect and taking personal responsibility for ourselves and not blaming, you know. I'm sure you see that in, you know, people who are addicted and people who are <laughs> anger man. I, I can't, you know, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And until you're willing to take personal responsibility and realize, perfect, I make mistakes, but can I learn from those mistakes? It's the old Nelson Mandela quote from the president of South Africa used to say, never lose. I either win or I learn. So what are you learning from these situations? Yeah. No matter how much bad things happen to us, we can learn from it. And that's what I try to instill in our clients is that, hey, you've lived a life. You've had ups, you've had downs, but are you learning from your downs as well as your ups? Or are you just focused on the downs and here we are and you're upset because things ain't working out how you think it should be? You know, keyword should. I find myself quite often reading email at work and first word creeps in my mind is they should. And then right in there, I stop. Boom. Oop. Just don't even go down that. Don't it just, it would be nice if they did this, but in my mind, they should. So when it comes to like lowering the expectations, I actually was telling some of the guys, Last week, I said, I sat for 30 minutes at Taco Bell drive through one time because I was coming home. My wife wanted Taco Bell. So guess what? The wife gets Taco Bell. How long it takes? It don't matter. I kind of role played in my head. I said, I'm guessing they're short staffed. No matter what I think is not going to speed them up. Me getting upset is not going to speed them up. 
So I get up there to drive through window and she's like, I'm sorry. She's like, I'm the only one here tonight. And I was like, I understand. But I could have been angry for 30 minutes <laughs> and put all that stress in my body for nothing. But hey, they had what I wanted, what I needed. I have no control over that. I don't know what's going on behind those doors. Hey, I'm, I'm at your mercy. The whole acceptance thing. Yeah, it yeah. is. And, and we don't like being uncomfortable. We, our, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So, you know, to the mind, the status quo is comfortable and familiar yeah. and should just be left alone. But, but the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is if we step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. And, you know, the, the next question that comes after this, well, how do we do that? And I, I think part of it is we try to, we do things that can callous our mind, just like we get calluses on, you know, on our hands. And, and people ask me, what, what do you do? And I, and I try to do this every day in my life, James, and, and I recommend it to, to people every day. Do one thing every day that makes you nervous, that scares you, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those little things every day, eventually when the big things in life hit us, and as you know, they, they hit all of us. We lose somebody who's close to us. We get let go from our job. We find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness. You'll be so much more resilient to handle those things when they present themselves. But it goes so contrary to how our brains are wired. So, you know, people, what, do, what do you mean? I, you know, yeah, yeah. I guess the easiest way I say it is, if you don't want to do it, do it. But if you don't want to go to the gym, go to the gym. If you don't want to clean the house, clean the house. If you don't want to stop at Taco Bell and get Taco Bell for your wife, start to Taco Bell and get Taco Bell for your wife. <laughs> Whatever you don't want to do, do it. Those are the ways you callous your mind and it makes you more resilient when those really large things in life hit us all. Trying to think of a quote. I'm sure I won't butcher it. Um, Henry Rollins of the Rollins Band, you know, Black Flag of the 80s, he had a nice quote that says, scar tissue is stronger than regular tissue. Take heed in that. I'm sure I yeah. butchered that quote. No, that's, that's good. I, there was, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one similar to that, Ernest Hemingway, who said, life breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. I think we're two people trying to say the same thing. No, but really, I mean, it's when life breaks you, I mean, can you heal? Can you be stronger in that area? And the answer is yes. I mean, I'm, I'm a living example of, you know, of, of somebody who's, you know, had his foot amputated, his leg amputated, was on all these drugs, all these medications. I could be miserable. I could be, you know, woe is me. This is all about me and things like that. But I made it, I made a decision early on in my cancer journey to say, you know what, no matter how bad things get, no matter how lousy I'm feeling, I will not take this out on, you know, a family member, a doctor, a nurse, a therapist, somebody that's trying to help me. It's not their fault. I got cancer. And I think that's another thing. We're, we're, we don't, take personal responsibility for our own success and happiness. You know, I've seen so many people, and I'm sure you have as well, that, you know, start down the road toward a goal. And then they, they butt up against an impediment. Something gets in their way and they can't, they can't get over it. They can't get, they can't get through it. So they quit, they give up, but they just don't quit. 
Now I'm going to blame somebody. You know, I got to blame my parents or I got to blame my boss or I got to blame my station in life. Most people will never get to where they want to be in life because they won't stop whining and complaining about where they're at. Very few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. And I, and that, that drives me nuts. You know, it's like, it's not somebody else's fault that I got cancer. And, and when people find out I, I had cancer, it's like, well, who do you blame? Like, what do you mean? Who do I blame? Well, you know, maybe it's your, do you blame your parents? Do you blame? No. And then when I find out I have a faith life, they're like, well, you must blame God. No, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer today. But I do think what God has done is given me the strength to, you know, to move forward for, for 11 years with this disease. And like I said, if, if I can do it, and I'm the biggest wimp in the world, I can do it. Anybody <laughs> listening to us, I think can do it. So you mentioned your faith and I already know the answer to this, but do you feel that your faith helped you through all this? D did you find more faith after the diagnosis or? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't know if I found more faith. I think my faith got, got refined, got focused, I guess, for lack of a better word. I remember when I, when I had my leg amputated and I, I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for. About eight months later, my oncologist, my doctor showed me my CAT scans. I have no medical background. I don't know how to read a CAT scan or anything like <laughs> that, but you can kind of look at it like, well, gee, that doesn't look like it belongs there, you know? And I, I had these tumors in my lungs and I flew it all around the plural spaces on the, the outer part of my lungs. And I remember looking at my, my oncologist and saying, how was I alive? I remember he, he got this grin on his face and sort of shook his head and he said, I don't know, because you shouldn't have been, which, which said to me that God's not done with me yet. And, and when I die, how I die, where, where I die, way above my pay grade, don't spend a lot of time worrying about the dying part, because there's nothing we can do about that. Spend more time worrying about the living part. Am I, am I doing my purpose? Am I, am I, have I found my purpose in life? Victor Frankl, the concentration camp survivor yes, during World yes. War II. Man's Search for Man, an excellent book, if you haven't had an opportunity to, to mm -hmm. read it, talks about how we can't be just arbitrary in our life, that we're all here for a particular reason. And if you find that reason and live it, you're so much more at ease when it comes time to leave this world. And, and I've, you probably have being in the military, I, I've certainly in my law enforcement career and my cancer journey, I've seen a lot of people die. And I'm going to make a huge generalization here, but the people who seem to die what you and I would call happy or peaceful deaths, again, generalization, seem to be the people that found their purposes in life and lived it versus the people who go kicking and screaming, who want another month or another year or, or whatever it is. Those always seem to be the people who never did anything with their lives. They never spent the time to try to find the reason they were put on the face of this earth. So I, I don't believe we're here randomly. I don't believe that we interact with each other on a random basis. There, there's a reason. And, and if we're smart enough and, and we're astute enough, we can figure that out. I can learn from you. You can learn from me. I can learn from anybody. I don't care mm -hmm. who you are, but, but spend that time finding your purpose in life. I think it's an, it's an incredibly important thing for all of us.
Definitely. That's one of the main things that I really try to drive to our clients is, you know, focus on you. It's okay to focus on you. Self-care, finding what you want in life, that's everything. Like we spend our entire lives trying to please other people, trying to make other people happy. One interesting thing that I, I enjoy doing is I like doing the Myers-Briggs personality test. And in my many years dealing with incarcerated individuals, probably the most common is caregiver. And I asked them, I said, why do you think, okay, you're here, you're incarcerated, your personality is caregiver, so why are you here? And it, it takes them a minute to kind of process it. And then finally somebody rings out and like, well, we're putting other people's needs above our own. I said, exactly. Learn to be able to take care of yourself. Figure out what you want out of life. And the whole, everybody knows that. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of nobody else. Everybody knows that. But nobody lives by it. We're too focused on all these external things. Got to be here. Got to do this. Got to do that. But how are you is a really sobering question to a lot of people. Like, say, if it's our first session and I'm talking to you, I'm like, hey, how are you? And they're kind of blown back because <laughs> they're thinking about courts. They're thinking about this. They're thinking about what they did last week. I'm like, how are you right now? And they can't wrap their mind around it. So I'm a huge fan of taking that time out. I don't care if you got to hide. I don't care if you got 15 kids, three wives, whatever. Hide in a closet if you have to. Just give yourself a little bit of me time and be present in your thoughts and try to get them together. Because we're bombarded with TVs and all this screens everywhere. But we really don't ask ourselves, hey, what do I need to be okay? Yeah, that's that's a great point. I was thinking when you were talking about that, you know, sort of the airplane example, you know, what do they always tell you? You know, if the oxygen mask dropped from the overhead compartment, put yours on first before you try to help somebody else. I mean, you've got to, because if, if you pass out, you're not going to be able to take care of you or anybody else. And if you can, if you can do that, it's like, okay, I got to put mine on first and then I, then I'll take care of you. Then that's, that's great. But you're right. We, we don't do that. I, I read an interesting book recently called Do Hard Things. It's by a man by the name of Steve Magnus. And he was the former track and field coach for the University of Minnesota. And he, in the book, he, he cites, I don't remember if it was a professor or a researcher or whoever it was, but he, he suggested or he, he told this story where this researcher took mostly young people and he put them in a room. And the only thing in the room was a table and a chair. And they were not allowed to have any devices, headphones, iPads, cell phones, nothing like that. And he kept them in there for about 15 minutes. The only other thing in the room was a buzzer on the, the desk, on the table, that if you pressed it, you received an electric shock. Now, I'm trying to remember what the numbers were. It was like, 68% of men and 28% of women pressed the button, shocked themselves during that alone time, during that, you know, time where you said, you know, whatever it is, go into the closet, take some time for yourself, which including one guy who, who basically shocked himself every five seconds for the duration that he was in that room. 
which told me that we're not comfortable in our own skin. We're not comfortable with who we are. And, and, and I don't feel that I am. I, I feel I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. But I spend about five to 10 minutes every day just sitting alone with myself, not meditating, not praying, not to, and you know, let your mind go wherever your mind goes, but spend some time every day. I think you give a great example, just having some me time, you know, being comfortable in your own skin of being comfortable with me. And if you do that, I think that allows you to be able then to help, like you said, if you have, you know, 15 kids and three wives and, you know, 85 parents and all that kind of stuff that you are, okay, now I can help those people because I spent a little bit me, spent a little time doing me time today. Yes. One example that I always give is, especially dealing with people in relationships, domestic violence issues. And I always ask them, I like, well, okay, so this is a new relationship or an old relationship. How long in between relationships? Unfortunately, a lot of them like, I already had one on the back burner. So we, we, we kind of explore that. So why do you feel the need to always have that person there? Have you ever been alone? Have you ever been single? Have you ever been by yourself? And oh, no, I, I just can't have to have somebody. I said, well, there's a big difference between wanting and needing somebody. And, and to a lot of them, it's, it blows their mind. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, like you said, then where are you going to go from there? Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, do you need me because you want me or do you want me because you need me? We don't, we don't give it our all. We don't go all in, you know, like on a relationship, you know, I've got one on the back burner just in case this one doesn't make it. Well, you're not giving everything you have to that relationship. And then you wonder why it falls apart. And I understand a lot of times people want to think that I've got to have everything in a row. Everything's got to be lined up perfectly before I do anything, before I start anything, whether it's a relationship or a business. Or, or, or whatever it ends up being. I remember listening to uh, Jesse Itzler, who was, was, may still be part owner of the Atlanta Hawks in the National Basketball Association. And he's married to Sarah Blakely. Uh, most guys don't know who Sarah Blakely is. Sarah Blakely is the founder and CEO of, of a company called Spanx, which is a women's under, undergarment company. And he talks about her, how... If she would have waited until everything was perfect, until everything was it was in a row before she started that company, then he said, I'll guarantee you somebody else would have started it before. He said she just jumped in with both feet, you know, committed herself to that company. And the same analogy, what you're talking about, commit yourself to that relationship all the way. Don't just stick your toe in the water. Maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. It's going to work if you don't go all in on it. And then figure it out as you go along. And I think that's the part of, I mean, you're married, I'm married. I've been married for 30 years. I don't know. How do we, how do, we do this? But that's the good times in the relationship. When things are tough and you two come together and try to figure out how this is going to work, whether it's, you know, your jobs or whether it's raising the kids or, or money or, or sex or whatever it ends up being, you, you get together, you work together to make it work. And then five years down the road, down the road, you kind of look back and say, man, we came together. The two became one and figured this out. But people always want to have a safety net. And sometimes life, life doesn't, life is about, you got to jump in with both feet. 
Yeah, and probably the most common question I ask is, how's that working for you? And that tends to rub people the wrong way. Like, I'm not being a smart ass. It's just a simple question. And a lot of them don't have a response because they're ashamed to realize, hey, this is not working out for me. I'm not enjoying this, but I'm not going to take the necessary steps to move beyond it or try to correct it. I'd rather sit here, complain, woe is me. Not take personal responsibility for your own success and happiness. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we're getting about to the hour. I could sit here and talk to you for hours. I know you've got things to do. Your story is amazing. I have not read your book. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy. It's got tons of five-star reviews on Amazon. So obviously some people are getting some good out of it. So I highly recommend checking that out. We covered a lot of ground and I hope this helps somebody out there, hopefully multiple people. And I'm very pleased, enthused, grateful. I would love to have you on again in the future because there's so many different avenues we can go down and it's great to see somebody that's overcome adversity, positive thinking. You're a rare bird, rare breed these days. We have that negative mentality, negative mindset. And, and like you said earlier about, there's plenty of studies that show that just through the power of positive thinking, we can actually rewire our brain, that neuroplasticity. Our brains can change. Your brain is resilient. It changes. It can do a lot of wonderful things if we allow it to grow, allow it to flourish, kind of like growing a plant, planting those seeds. One of my favorite books is The Four Agreements. Have you ever read that one? I have. Yeah. Just, I like it because it's just simple, just straightforward. And you read it and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever. But when you read it two, three, four times, you're going, okay, well, there's a lot to this. They're going to plant these seeds. What I do with it, that's on me. That's not on them. If they say, hey, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. And if I agree with it, then guess what? I'm going to think I'm stupid. But if I don't allow those seeds to take root, and if I don't water them, then I'm just going to shush them away. And we have that ability. We have that power. And that's all on us. We can't control other people, what they say, what they do. The example I always give is every one of us, I don't care what your age is, you can probably think back to a time where somebody said something negative, whether it be your 5, 10, 15, and you still remember them saying that. You still remember how it made you feel. And it still makes you feel the exact same way. And unfortunately, with a lot of people that I work with is somebody says, you're just going to be just like your father. And it sticks with them. And they begin to believe it. They begin to accept, hey, maybe my father was not that great of a guy. So I guess I'm not that great of a guy. No, you can break, you can break that connection. You can be your own person. And it's the power that's within all of us. Don't allow anybody to have that much power over you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting off on a, a thing, but thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk with me, try to get this posted in the next couple of weeks. Keep doing what you're doing, man. 
Uh, I look forward to reading your book. It takes me a while, but uh, but I've read plenty of them, and that's kind of forced myself. Should I read a book that's going to improve my life or watch a rerun Saturday Night Live from the 90s? I usually lean towards the Saturday Night Live in the 90s, but... <laughs> I don't blame you. I would, too. Yeah, that's when it was the best, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah Will yeah, I remember when Saturday Night Live first started. I thought that was the best. The Chevy uh, Chase, Tom Belosi, Dan Aykroyd, all those oh, guys. Yeah. Probably Dan Aykroyd's probably my favorite. He just could do just so many different characters and just give it his all. But yeah. that's a different conversation. I hear you. I hear you. Well, James, uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you need anything from me, give me a holler. Keep doing what you're doing as well. You're making a big difference, I'm sure, in, in people's lives that you're counseling and things like that. And you know, sometimes you, know, you say things 50 times, but it's that 51st time where it clicks, you know, where they, they're receptive to it, where they, they're in a position where they want to hear it or need to hear it, that, that it makes it, that makes it work. So keep doing what you're doing. And thanks again for having me on your show. All right. That was uh, Terry Tucker. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed. Please check out all of the stuff that he has going on, motivationalcheck.com. Also, check out his book. It's available on Amazon. Again, it's called Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Please follow this podcast. Probably the easiest way is Twitter. Our Twitter handle is anger underscore LLC. And if you got any topics you want us to cover, shoot me an email. Or just check it out on our website freedomanger.com hopefully you enjoyed it and hopefully we'll have more of these coming out on a weekly basis until then stay safe mm-hmm.